Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com and... The email address is vetgurus at gmail.com. We always welcome email. We always need more friends, as we keep saying all the time. And we need more patrons. So go to patreon.com slash vetgurus and become a patron. What does that involve? Mark, it involves people giving us money to help pay for our podcast. That would be wonderful if you gave us some money. And they don't have to give us very much at all. It, all of it counts and adds up. So, um, uh, you know, just even a, a, what might seem like a token um, uh, makes a means big a difference. Lot to us. To, means an awful lot to us. It does, yes. You can start at the low, low price of $1 Australian, $1 Australian a month. Just think how much value you get from all these podcasts that you manage to, you know, we have people that listen to the podcast that helps them do their do their cleaning in their house because it, it um, keeps them awake while they're doing it. We have other people go to sleep listening to our podcast, don't they, Mark? So so we have all spectrum of, of, of types of things our podcast helps with. So, um, yes. Become a patron. That would make us very happy. And I think, Mark, we'll have another competition soon. We'll have to start thinking about what we would do for a competition and what the prize will be, Mark. So put your thinking cap on, Mark. So what have you been up to, Mark, in the last few weeks? This is a little special, this one. So we haven't, we don't have a date down for this podcast because... It is one that we were putting in in between other podcasts. So um, let's just talk generic about um, what's been happening with you well, lately, Mark, in the last six to twelve years. <laughs> Generically speaking, I was I am going to um, put a, a a a really interesting thing happened to us recently at work. It was it's a bit of a surprise, Brendan. We had a client who um, who who we normally deal with their reptiles. They um, had taken their young child to the local. Um, to the local playground and at that playground they found um a inverted uh pillow slip that looked to be squirming around like there were snakes inside and sure enough they very carefully um opened the bag um obviously a person experienced with reptiles and they found two breedles pythons in the bag brendan um ah. and uh and so th- th- i mentioned this because it is a little bit of a i think the ownership of reptiles has gone through this um this bit of a cycle now and and we are seeing the occasional stray or surrendered animal that people can no longer look after um they weren't quite aware of the length of life and the cost of electricity that would be required when they acquired the beautiful animal and yeah so a couple of stray reptiles have been popping up on my radar brendan Interesting. I thought you were going to say it was a cat in the bag that (laughs) that they pulled out um and the only other comment i have with that is yeah the the keeping of reptiles has gone through the roof we see a few reptiles that escape from clients enclosures and they invariably 
the majority of them end up in the roof. I don't know whether you've had a few of them, Mark. So, and then a year, two years, sometimes um, even longer than that, um, they finally find that reptile and always living quite happily and still, still looking apparently well, um, being found in the roof because it, it must have snuggled up to some sort of warm area where there might be that the, the draft was from the heater was there or near the um, fireplace and perhaps they're catching a few rats up in the roof there, Mark. So, yes, um, we are seeing an increasing number of reptile clients. So I think that is a good thing for the business, I suppose, um, whether it's good for these reptiles that are then dumped. And I think the difficulty with that, Mark, is that there is no where that people would think of taking a reptile when they don't want to keep it anymore and they don't think that they could potentially take it to places like the RSPCA which which would take them in um, it's similar to what would happen with a dog or a cat the first thing people think about is taking them to the welfare organizations but if they have something a little bit different or unusual they don't think that they that just doesn't click with them that they could potentially take them to those rescue organizations and that they would finally find a, a good home for them and or find um get them rehoused um so perhaps it's something we should promote or maybe we shouldn't mark What's well i think thoughts? well i think um uh, those i know here in the hunter and further north in brisbane um both the um, rescue the, the RSPCA and the local rescue organisations do an excellent job of finding homes for those um, uh, those animals that are that have reached you know that people can't care for anymore that um, need to be surrendered. But I don't think they have a huge amount of reserve capacity. They're they're um, easily overwhelmed. They've only got a limited amount of uh, space to keep those animals in and a limited number of people they can transfer them to. So so I, I, I think it's um, – I always suggest to people if they feel that they're coming to the stage where they might not uh, want those animals anymore, they should start early planning the disposition of the animals because otherwise they'll reach a sort of crescendo point where they can't find a place for them to go and they have to go if they're moving or whatever. Um, so planning ahead and maybe taking advantage of the the um, local RSPCA when there's no pressure, that's a good thing to do. Absolutely. And and we have uh, here in Melbourne our local um, RSPCA and, and welfare organisations do have good contacts with with some of the exotic pet rehoming organisations and even though they don't have the facilities to rehouse rabbits or guinea pigs, for example, then they they do have close contact with the guinea pig and the rabbit rescue organisations and they, they have a good system in place now for those rabbits or guinea pigs or, and the reptiles as well to, to get out to where they should to potentially be rehomed there. So, yes, definitely. Um, what's been happening with, with me? Well... I don't have, well, yeah, well, I tell you what happened. We had wasps. Mark. wasps. We had wasps, yes. Um, outside the back of the clinic, we had a European wasp nest. And the little story with that is that it was right next to our freezer out the back, which stores all our deceased patients. So my staff were a little bit reluctant to head out to to put all my failure, failed um, surgeries into the freezer um, because of the wasps that were getting quite angry. They were quite angry. 
And it's not just me that gets angry. Market sees wasps that were getting quite angry there. So, and I became even more angry when I phoned up the local council, and we managed to convince two of the local council members, and two had to come out because one is not good enough. They needed a friend to come out to view the wasp nest that's in the car park behind my clinic. And they stood, and I kid you you not, Mark, they stood about 15 metres away from the wasp nest and then gave me a talking to and said, this is not council property. It is a private car park. Um, We rent or lease the clinic premises, as you know, Mark. Um, So... And it is part of the car park, but it was on the border of the next door. We're in a little shopping centre strip. And I thought that it would be a hazard for the people going to the pizza shop um, two doors down as well. And the council people said, no, we're not going to help you out, um, even though they go around to private properties or anything that's council land and they'll quite readily fumigate the wasp nests, Mark. They refused to do it. I can't so believe they, that, Brendan. They've, they've got all the resources there. They just have to pull the trigger and do the job. So that's where Brendan jumped in, Mark. So <laughs> I went down to at the local hardware store, the Bunning store, and I managed to get the little wasp and... Oh, and this isn't going to end well. Half a pack? No, it ended quite well, Mark, um, because they, 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 they told me in great detail what to use and apparently what they recommended using because these days it's hard to get the wasp powder, which is basically was a, a, a pyrethrin or pyrethrin-based um, powder, Mark, um, that I ended up getting. But they said you couldn't purchase those um, specifically for, for treating wasp nests and that what I should use is tomato dust, um, so it's used on tomato plants, as the name implies, to treat external parasites um, in, uh, for your tomatoes. So I went down to the store looking to buy this tomato dust, and I did find the actual wasp dust puffer pack, and I gowned up, Mark, with my hoodie and my long sleeves, and I headed to the clinic very early in the morning. I usually do anyway, but I arrive there even more early than usual, earlier than usual, around about 6.30 in the morning. And I gowned up. It was a pretty cold day, and um, I got my puffer pack, and I attacked the wasp's wasps nest, Mark, and I puffed away. I puffed away (laughs) and ran, (laughs) and um, they were pretty angry, I tell you. (laughs) I, I didn't get bitten, which was good. And it was amazing how well it worked. I I went back out probably about two hours later and it was like Armageddon there, Mark. There was 40 wasps dead outside the nest there. So um, it did its job and the wasps were no longer. But I was very disappointed with the council for not um, sending their little fumigator out to do the um, do the job for me. Sounds like you did an awesome job in lieu of the uh, the um, the professionals. Hardly distinguishable, I would say. Um, but um, we should um, European wasps. It's not that we're 
you know, having having a go at one particular sort of wasp. Um, these ones, are, uh, they take the place of many of our native wasps. They sting many of our native animals, um, and they are a bit of a pest in our part of the world, uh, uh, a species that's been brought over. So while normally I'm all for maintaining our local arthropod population, I think you've done a good thing getting rid of this particular nest, Brendan. Um, thank you, Mark. Um, I think I have something I can retire into, um, wasp killer extraordinaire. So, yeah, that's what I've been up to. So that was my little bit of excitement in my otherwise very boring life, Mark. So let's jump into some news stories. And do you want to take the first I will. Story, the Mark? first one I'll talk about will be, um, well, it's – um, uh, it's um, from the Daily Mail online. It's uh, and so being on the, you know, from the Daily Mail, it's um, they're trying to make a few play on word um, with their headline. Um, it's a story about the rising popularity, particularly in Britain, of um, of dachshunds as a breed. The registrations of purebred dogs have soared over the last three years. Um, and, uh, and in addition, the non-registered uh, breeders seem to be, um, uh, the numbers of those dogs seem to be skyrocketing as well. And after having dropped considerably down the top 100, um, Dahis have risen back up to about number 17 at the moment. Um, but that represents something like a 40% rise in number of uh, registered PARPs and a climb up the uh, popular breed table over the last three years. So, um, so what are the factors do you reckon that uh, are contributing to the popularity of um, of the Daxon, Brendan? I think the usual. It looks cute. It's something a bit different. It's it's something that is obvious, obviously a fun looking animal, and people like the bizarre and the different. I know that sounds a bit controversial, Mark. But I don't think we should be encouraging this sort of thing. What's your thoughts on it? I agree entirely. I'm, I'm a, a big subscriber of the um, uh, of the AVA's policy. Um, uh, it's advertising program to try and discourage uh, people from breeding um, dogs such as dackies and pugs and French bulldogs because of the problems these animals have, the the um, back problems that are almost inevitable for most dackies, um, the, the uh, arthritis from their misshapen, shortened joints, um, the, obviously the pugs and French bulldogs have uh, that brachycephalic syndrome where they have trouble breathing their whole life. Um, and so I, th- I do like the idea that um, we're very careful about um, recommending these animals um, and um, and I do worry that people are selecting them as pets, as you said, because they're cute, because they're a bit different, because some celebrity has had them. Um, I I think that it, um, you know, there should be other reasons that we choose our companion animals, and uh, they should be less in the, they should be more of a partnership and less in the service of our shallow entertainment value. Is that too harsh, Brendan? Oh, have I lost you, Brendan? Have you dropped off the page or have I dropped off the page? No, I've done my usual and I was 
put myself on mute while I was looking up the next article there, Mark. But no, you you are never too harsh. That's um, I, I think you've never been harsh in your whole life, and I think your your lovely wife would attest to that as well, Mark. Um, this article was from, and did you mention that? I can't remember whether you did. Was from Britain, wasn't it? So, do you do you see many dac- dackies in your clinic? Well, well, I was um, I was just uh, thinking back to the time that uh, we were in. Uh, do you remember we were recently at the ABA conference in Brisbane, and um, after you left, Kate did come up and stay with me for a couple of days, and we did a bit of walking around Brisbane over the weekend after the ABA conference, and I was struck by how many people did have dackies, and I think those small-sized, small-legged dogs, people think that they're good, um, you know, we're in near South Bank and there's quite a lot of apartments there, and I think um, their cuteness, their... Uh, suitability for apartment life. They're things that attract people to them, but they're, they're definitely on the rise, Brendan. Ah, I didn't see any dackies when I was up there, Mark, so um, it must have been the regions you went out to with with your good wife um, after I left, I think. Um, so what sort of areas were you visiting? The more salubrious sections of Brisbane? <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we probably spent most of our time wandering down around South Bank, taking short walks between eating establishments. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, getting back to the topic at hand, I, I'm trying to think, whether we have any dackies on the our client list, our patient list, and I'm really pushed to to think of any I've seen recently. Um, so I don't, um, I certainly don't think they're the flavour of the month or the year here down in Melbourne. Um, certainly nowhere near as um, much as as some of the other dogs that we we we, we don't particularly think should be. Bred very often, like the um, like the little pugs, etc. We certainly see a lot of those, those little brachycephalic dogs. But yeah, I, I don't think I've seen a dackie for a fair period of time. What about those French bulldogs? Um, did, did, are they on the uh, rise? Yeah, I've I've seen a few of them. Yes, I have. So you see a few up your way. We they are a um, a breed that's on the rise, and and crikeys, I I feel so um, frustrated because. Um, Jeez, they just have so many problems. They keep so many specialist veterinarians in work in so many different fields. Yes, yes. It's, um, yeah, it's good for business but bad for the animal, isn't it? That's what I say about feeding muesli diets to rabbits all the time to my clients. I say we see lots of dental problems in rabbits that are brought in. It's because you're feeding this this crappy mix. Um, but it's good for business. But don't feed it to your rabbit, yes. Um, so, no, I will let you know the next time I see a dachshund in our practice, Mark, and I will send you a text straight away, okay? I'll be keen to get it, Brendan. Yes, don't hold your breath. That's all I <laughs> want to say. The next news news article is about dog speak, Mark, and this one sort of piqued my interest, and it is a team in or from the University of York's Department of Psychology where they were looking at how we talk to dogs and whether they respond to the baby babble that we talk to dogs with. And um, researchers did a series of speech tests with adult dogs 
Mark, where they were given the chance to listen to one person using dog-directed speech, which contained phrases such as, you're a good dog, and shall we go for a walk? And then another person using adult-directed speech with no dog-related content, such as, I went to the cinema last night. Well, we know what's going to happen if you say that to your dog. They're going to be bored off their brain and they're not going to react to that, are they? <laughs> um, attention during the speech was measured and following the speech, the dogs were allowed to choose which speaker they wanted to physically interact with. And the speakers then mixed dog-directed speech with the non-dog-related words and adult-directed speech with dog-related words um, to work out what was happening. And the bottom line was they found adult dogs were more likely to want to interact and spend time with the speaker that used dog-directed speech with dog-related content than they did those that used adult-directed speech with non-dog-directed content. So I think that research was a whole waste of time, Mark, <laughs> because I think we all know that that's probably what's going to happen. <laughs> How many times have uh, I used... I'm angry. <laughs> It is. How do how do um how do these people get funding? I want to, I want to know how good they are at writing these funding proposals. Well, the the thing that made me the most angry about this article, Mark, is the last quote from this article, which I'm trying to think where this came from. This article we have to chase up. We'll we'll have the link the link in our show notes at vetgurus.com, and it. The quote is, we hope this research will be useful for pet owners interacting with their dogs and also for veterinary professionals and rescue workers. Well, it's bugger all used to me, Mark. That's all I can say. <laughs> so I think I'm being a bit harsh, am I, Mark? Speaking of being harsh. I think um, we're having a harsh, a harsh episode. <laughs> no, no, I think you've called it fair. I think it's completely fair call. So why did I pull out that article? I don't know. I think I pulled it out from somewhere I shouldn't have pulled it out, Mark. So I think you shouldn't need to jump onto the last article, and that is – no, it's the third last article, isn't it? Um, what are we going to talk about? Salamanders. I know. I want to talk about some um, – well, it's a little bit of a uh, um, nuanced discussion um, uh, because I'm going to talk about um, – China's giant salamanders. Um, and so the, the, there's several interesting aspects to this story. Um, the, 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 probably the take-home message is, like most of our discussion of unusual animals in exotic locations, is they're in trouble. Um, and this, the trouble is, um, is, uh, is a little bit... Um, Unexpected. It comes from an unexpected um, source. So the giant salamanders, obviously, uh, in um, that part of the world, not that I'm making any judgment, but they've been a, um, a culinary delicacy, um, and that has, um, has um, increased. But um, as a result of this, um, there's been a boom in the commercial farming of giant salamanders, um, and the government in China has promoted this um, industry both directly as a uh, as a method of farming and feeding people an, uh, an exotic um, uh, dietary item but also as a um, as a uh, you know 
um, way of saving the animals so that they're not being harvested from the wild. And um, that government support has resulted in very successful private breeding programs. Um, And a number of those animals in those breeding programs have returned to the wild. Now, the problem here, Brendan, is that... um, particularly recently it's with DNA analysis, it's become apparent that there's not just one species of Chinese giant salamander, but at least uh, five different species. And as you would expect, um, some of those species are in critical trouble. And what's worse is that um, a number of those species identified by the rivers they're in are now technically no longer they don't exist because the animals that are in those rivers uh, turn out to be the result of um, of crossbreeding or release from some of those farms and the original animals that inhabited the river uh, are effectively extinct. Um, so the, the problem at the moment is that um, is that it would appear that one or two of the um, species are um, overwhelming the others and um, these four or five foot salamanders are, are um, uh, the, 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 the less common species are entering a, um, a phase of what they call hidden extinction where they're being overwhelmed by similar species um, but they're so unfamiliar to people. People can't tell the difference between them that they don't even realise they've lost whole genetic cohorts. So it's a little bit depressing, Brendan. Um, yes, you sort and of a bit, bit of a mess, isn't it? <laughs> a bit of a mess. It, is, it certainly is. Um, uh, it, it certainly, uh, it's pleasing at least that um, the animal, the, the group of animals has not uh, been wiped out and that farming has allowed them to survive. Um, but it is um, depressing that uh, the farming's overwhelmed some of the, um, the less common, the more endangered species and driven them to extinction. Yes. Well, where can I go from there, Mark? <laughs> I'm going to talk about... I'm going to talk about a family dog called Teddy, and this was a while ago, Mark, um, but it's a good news story, a good news story. I think we need one today. Thank goodness for that. Teddy has been awarded the PDSA gold medal after saving the life of a young boy who became trapped in a tumble dryer. And this was in November 2016 with five-year-old Riley, who has Down syndrome, climbed in a pretty horrific sort of story when you think about it, climbed into the family's tumble dryer and somehow managed to start the drying cycle by pulling the door closed. And his mother was upstairs at the time and Teddy's frantic barking and growling alerted her to the danger that Riley was in the dryer. So she eventually heard and she she heard the dog barking, ran downstairs and pulled him out, put him in the uh, cold shower to try and minimise the burns and the ambulance arrived very quickly. He spent uh, time in hospital and he had a full recovery mark. So there Teddy was, which is a three-year-old dog um, in Belfast, from Belfast. Um, She was accompanied by um, their four children and the parents and the... I'm trying to think what what PDSA stands for with this. I presume it's the um, Society for um, 
um, I'll have to look it up, Matt. You can look it up while I'm chatting here. Um, the gold medal was launched in 2002 as a way of recognising civilian animals who showed life-saving bravery and exceptional devotion to duty. And Teddy was the 27th recipient, recipient of the award, Mark. So that's a pretty good news story there. So, I mean, maybe... Um, you know, um, maybe you shouldn't have crawled into the um, – maybe that I, I'd be suing the dryer company for that, Mark. How, how could a dryer turn on by itself when you jump in there? I, I might try that after I've finished our little podcast here. Well, I've got a, two two things to tell you about that story, Brendan. The first one is the People's Dispensary for Sick Animals is a uh, veterinary charity in the United Kingdom. and they're ah, the There we go. They're like the one of the the um, similar to the RSPCA. Now the other Thank part you. of the story is that when my two boys were very young, probably one I don't know they would have been about three and five, maybe two and four. Um, I was left alone to look after them. Well, I probably bad news them. number one. Yeah. <laughs> the boys <laughs> noticed the shiny shiny inside of the um, dryer, and you know as us boys are attracted to shiny things. They wanted to have a close look. One of them climbed, I lifted them up. I have to be honest and say I lifted them up and, um, and they climbed in. And as they did, the other one pressed the button to start it. And poor Wilson did a complete circuit uh, before I managed to turn it off. Fortunately, he'd um, flexed himself against the wall. And so, didn't bounce around inside the shiny dryer, um, but he did get a horrible fight and fright and wanted to get out straight away. And I lost my um, my entry to Father of the Year that year. Um, it was you lost uh, your license to be a father, <laughs> I think. So let me get it straight. You put one <laughs> no, of your don't say it like that. See, Mark, I knew this story wasn't going to be as cut and dried as I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> I had to put that pun in there. Sorry. Um, um, okay. Um, I'm shocked. I'm shocked, Mark. I'm shocked. <laughs> I'll have to we should move on to our a review, I think, Brendan. Maybe, maybe next um, podcast or one of the future podcasts I'll talk about how I uh, trapped one of my daughter's finger. <laughs> Our children are going to look back on these. I can't stop laughing. I will tell you in a future podcast. Children are going to look back on these, the recordings, after we're long gone, Brendan, and they're just going to have so much fun recalling all the things we've told people about them. And they'll realise where it all came from, yes, all, all that distress they've had in their lives, yes. <laughs> okay, um, yes, no, I will tell you that story at some stage, perhaps on the podcast of how I trapped her finger in a door. And, um, um, it's a little bit a little bit gruesome, but, um, yeah, um, I think I'm a bit of a klutz like you are when it comes to some of these things, Mark, but it's probably a bit of a dad thing, I think, I yes. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so let's jump on to, before we get out onto our main story here, you wanted to do, and let's make it fairly um, fairly brief, um, um, you have a review of a product, Mark. I do, I do. I've been using it for some time at work, Brendan. Um, it's the uh, Alive Core Vet ECG monitor for your iPhone. So um, 
Let me at the very start say that I do not use this um, for, you know, it's only a, a um, single lead ECG, um, but, um, but it is, and you're not going to identify any significant electrical aberrations. Um, it is really useful, though, for assessing um, uh, some rhythm disturbances, um, and it's really easy to use. So it comes as a special case which your iPhone sits in, um, and uh, it's battery-powered, um, and so it just feels like your iPhone. Um, you spray, you usually don't for maybe some longer-haired dogs, you've got to clip the, the hair, but for most dogs, I just spray a small amount of uh, alcohol onto the skin and apply the, um, the back of the case, which has two uh, panels, two electrodes, I suppose you'd call them, and um, your phone will generate um, a, um, an ECG trace, and it's easy to do um, it's nice and quick the animals don't get very distressed um, the the trace is sent to uh, a live cause server in the US where it is stored and you can download it as a PDF and attach it to their file all really easily um, I don't I can't tell you off the top of my head what these things cost I think it's a couple of hundred dollars for the uh, the case um, but um, we we charge the uh, – I regularly use them in um, routine consults, particularly for senior animals, um, and uh, and I charge out the, the um, ECG trace at about um, $25. Um, clients see it as a, uh, you know, much better way than having to hospitalise an animal and do a multi-lead trace on a partially sedated animal. And, um, and because they, it's one of those demonstrative things, you're doing it in front of them and you can show them um, the uh, trace straight away. And, uh, and of course, anything that's on your, um, your uh, uh, phone that looks, makes you look more up-to-date and hip, the clients get impressed with. So I've made excellent use of this product, Brendan. Good. So, we, so how do you... Just go over again how, how you print out the trace for them. Um. So usually I don't print out the trace for the clients. The if the the trace that you have is uploaded to a server in the US and stored there, you can access it on your AliveCore account, which operates through the app on your phone, and you can also get the that um, server to download a PDF of that trace um, and you can attach that PDF to the, the, uh, the patient's file. So you can print that PDF out. It's probably that's something that takes a few minutes to do, so I wouldn't routinely be giving that to the client, uh, but we do routinely attach it to the medical record. Um, and But I definitely can you know, show the client a, a, um, a couple of minute trace and run through the, um, the you know, sinus arrhythmia or um, particularly if there's anything more significant it gives us immediate um, op opportunity to explain it to the client and move on to more more dramatic investigation I suppose. Yes excellent review so you need to give it a score out of 10 mark so I can pop that in the show notes at vetgurus.com and I, I and look, score it's, it's well, it's well over eight and not quite a nine. So I'd be giving it about <laughs> eight point six, Brendan. 
Oh, you disappoint me. You've always uh, – why don't we just say give it a score between 8 and 10 um, for every single product you review, Mark. <laughs> so you're giving it 8.9 is your review. Is that what you're 8. saying? 8.6. 8.6, okay. It's not 8.9. Right. It's not quite that good. <laughs> 8.6. Sorry, I've got to write that down. Um, so, yes, um, we put it in those show notes there. Good. Okay, so I'll try and um, get stuck into some reviews in the, within the next few um, podcasts as well, Mark, because I think you're well ahead of me with the product reviews. So uh, We share the well, load very well, Brendan. Don't, don't we, it's all good. <laughs> well, our main topic this week, Mark, is a recorded interview from the Australian Veterinary Association Conference back in Brisbane that we did um, in May and it is with our dear friend David Middleton. So this is with Dr. David Middleton who was my mentor when I was a zoo veterinarian. So he was my mentor when I did my master's degree which explains a lot um, of his state of mind, Mark, when we spoke to him and we had some fantastic um stories from David. I managed to eke out a couple of the um, fun stories of David's life. Um, David now runs Mount Mary Winery in Victoria, which was one of the first wineries that established the Yarra Valley, Yarra Valley Winery District in Victoria, in the Yarra Valley. And um, that's what his full-time job is now. He took over the family winery. But um, David has a long history and a very illustrious history as a wildlife veterinarian and a pioneering wildlife veterinarian in Melbourne and in Australia. And he's a lovely guy. So let's cross to that interview, Mark, and then we'll have a little bit of chat about David after the interview. Well, we have a special guest this week, and it's somebody very dear to my heart, and that is um, Dr. David Middleton, who was my mentor when I was a, a zoo veterinarian, and I was completing my master's in Australian wildlife medicine. And David was the man. David he's, was he's the a man. He's a bit of a legend. Yes, he is. So I think I'll leave it to you to ask the questions, because otherwise... No, no, I'll I be... think we, we, we should all pitch in. <laughs> but but my, I wanted, uh, my, my first set of questions, because of the long-standing relationship you guys have, I'm interested to know where it all began. Where did, where did you first meet Brendan, David? That's one of the things that I just can't remember, Brendan. <laughs> Can you remember? <laughs> it's, it's, Brendan's one of those people that I feel like I've always known, you know, and I, I can't really identify well, the, a time, the first time. But I didn't know Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it was we first met when I did a locum at Hillsville Sanctuary. So um, I was working part-time yep. at... I'd go up to Ballarat Wildlife Park here in Victoria, Australia um, when I first graduated after a year or so and I did a bit of wildlife work at the wildlife park with Greg Parker and oh, Ballarat Wildlife right, Park. Yeah. And then at one stage, Hillsworth Sanctuary, which is where um, yep. I first yep. met you, David, um, one of the three zoos in of Zoo Victoria, um, needed a locum. And yep. I think I went out there and did a locum and it was all downhill from there, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, well, that, this. Thank you for reminding me because the Greg Parker was the reptile keeper at the sanctuary, and I worked there as a keeper prior to doing veterinary science, and because I was interested in wildlife, and I took summit work at the sanctuary, and uh, I got 
I got uh, placed with Greg in the reptile house. And this is obviously long before Ballarat Wildlife and Reptile Park was started. And Greg was such a fantastic mentor for me, you know, in all those... Well, it was really because of the the dangers of the creatures that he was looking after and the way the professional manner in which he looked after them that I, I took to wildlife because of that exposure you know, with, with Greg and the reptiles. Yeah. It's a full circle, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so he taught me how to feed the goannas, you know, with shorts on, on you know, and, and short socks <laughs> and, and, and going into the, with the goannas on a hot day when they were particularly hungry, <laughs> carrying a piece of meat in each hand. <laughs> Stuff like that. And Greg... Well, well, Greg was a very, probably still is, a very athletic man. He had terrific reflexes, and I, it wasn't long before I sort of started to adapt or adopt the same sort of... <laughs> the flight or fright <laughs> Techniques. Yeah. But some people say I became twitchy. <laughs> <laughs> so... You were keeper, and then what you you did um, one year of, of of medicine, didn't you? And then you transferred over to veterinary science. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. I uh, came from a bit of a, a line of GPs. Um, my, my grandfather was a country GP in Nil. He started the hospital in Nil, Western Victoria. Dad was a sort of uh, he kept telling me how good he was as a student, and you know how I should do the same thing. And I was convinced that I should be the third, you know, in the line. Uh, medicine wasn't for me. Couldn't swallow the medicine. Uh, and uh, I always wanted to get into veterinary science. But back then, and I imagine it might be the same now, that it's more difficult to get into veterinary science than into medicine. It certainly was then. So I took medicine as my choice because uh, I didn't get into vet. So, um, but but I, I was able to transfer because they had... I think it was called an E-class entry where you could come in as a mature or a slightly older student and that gave me just a, an advantage, you know, over others that perhaps had better marks but they weren't old enough. Yeah. So, uh, so I got into vet and, um, yeah, uh, with the intention of becoming a zoo vet and um, I got told I had rocks in my head because there weren't, you know, there was only like three zoo vets in the country at that stage but ended up sort of, uh, you know, getting there by, uh, by a lot of good luck and, uh, and the people I met along the way. But, uh, yeah, and I, I, I uh, think meeting Brendan and Peter Holtz, who, you know, another uh, zoo vet who's still uh, very active in that, that wildlife sort of medicine and surgery sphere, meeting you guys sort of uh, made the whole thing really mean a lot more to me because you had such diverse interests and, you know, I think together we pushed the whole Australian wildlife medicine and surgery thing along a fair bit during our, our time at uh, Melbourne Zoo and Hillsville Sanctuary. And, and during that period, David, your obvious big project there was the development and construction of the um, Wildlife Health Centre at Hillsville Sanctuary and do you want to briefly talk about the difficulties and, and, and the um, long road to getting that um, um, produced and constructed? Yeah, well, um, we're, not, we're not going to dwell on this, but I did, <laughs> I, I did have a... I, my, my career at Healesville was uh, um, interrupted, would be the best word to use at one stage, because uh, I, I was uh, 
engaged in a battle over animal welfare issues and ended up losing my job over it because, um, let's just say, the business interests uh, were held above the animal welfare interests, which was untenable for me. But, um, like all good stories, like all good fairy tales, the, the individuals that had those opinions about where animal welfare sat in the, in the sort of hierarchy of importance in the zoo ended up leaving and the people that took over re-employed me. <laughs> so so the, the veterinary interests sort of came back towards the top, which is where, where zoo... Uh, zoos ought to be managed from a position where animal health and welfare is at the top. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and I think we, you know, we've sort of migrated back to that sort of way. So, so I had this bizarre idea that veterinary science was so important and animal welfare and health was so important that we should build a clinic, a hospital, that took the whole veterinary story. We turned the hospital inside out. And we'd, and we'd invite the visitor right into the hospital and we'd be doing our veterinary work right in front of everyone and having them being part of the process. And you know, I, I've sort of always felt that, especially with young people, if you can get them involved, standing beside you, you know, touching, feeling, talking to you as you're doing your, your work, they, they're going to much more likely to be inspired, you know, and, and perhaps even take up veterinary science, or at least take a keen interest in the health of animals and the health of the environment. And I think it was around about that time, Mark, that I ended up, um, luckily enough, um, accepting or, or being offered a position to do my master's degree at Hillsdale Sanctuary, and I was involved with a little bit of that politics that was happening around when, when, when um, things weren't very good at Hillsdale Sanctuary, but then um, was there um, towards the middle part when that um, hospital was constructed, but I wasn't, I'd actually left when, when it finally got built there. Yeah, and, yeah, but you definitely fed a lot of really good material into the process of designing that, that building. I mean, we had architects to design the building, let's be clear about that, but... Uh, the architects can only translate the vision of yep. the people that are that are guiding the project. They they can come up with the practical interpretation, but it's the the themes that come from from you guys that want to invite uh, people into that sphere and let them see it that um, the architects have expressed. I've been in um, Hillsville as a visitor with my family, and and I know that it's always a highlight of their experience at Hillsville to wander into the. Um, the space where veterinarians do their work for the individual animals and, and it's not always, not every single time we've been there that someone's been doing surgery or working with the animals but it's always something that they look forward to and hope to catch a glimpse of, of that aspect of zoo life. So, yeah. So just, uh, just yeah, describe yeah. to <laughs> listeners who, who may never get to see it, how, how, how does that building work when you walk into it so yeah. how does that work as far okay, as okay so let's just uh, imagine that you're walking into a donut donut shaped building so the gallery is kind of like the uh, the the meat of the donut <laughs> and the hole in the middle of the donut is actually a kid's space where where young people can uh, play vet you know they they've got access to furry creatures and stethoscopes and you know and uh, and various other uh, uh, props that they can uh, role play with and around them because it's all the glass there's a glass wall around that space they can see the real vet stuff going on as well but 
uh, Mark, you allude to the fact that sometimes you go in there and there's not a lot happening, and that's that's always been one of the uh, I think the downfalls of zoo exhibits generally that you, know, you build these magnificent habitats for creatures, for example, and during the day you know, a lot of our animals are nocturnal, you know, <laughs> and and the visitor isn't going to see a lot happening. So you, I think you've got to construct other interesting, engaging things that lead people, you know, uh, in a direction of, you know, developing respect for wildlife and, you know, and being entertained at the same time. Well, I think the key, the, the one thing I'd be really pleased to say to you is that I think that whole thing at Healesville was before its time. It showed considerable foresight and that's the, I know now throughout the the zoo world, that's the philosophy that is um, is widespread and entrenched, um, and it's places like Hillsville that started that process and introduced keepers and administrators to the idea that it is a privilege to get to see the animals, but um, the people who are there still have to have something to do when that privilege isn't immediately available, and, uh, um, and yeah, I, I, I pat you on the back. I think that foresight has led us into a good place with zoos. Well, thanks for that, Mark. I think that, you know, it's not not perfect. You know, none of these things are ever perfect. But the compromise of a zoo is that you want people to come in the gate and fund the activities of the zoo. We are evolving away from a purely exhibitionist philosophy within zoos. We don't think it's... Um, acceptable to just incarcerate animals purely for the purpose of exhibit and so zoos are now adopting a role in you know management of wildlife and conservation you know habitat conservation they're involved within the zoo and outside the zoo in situ there's a lot of endangered species programs going on and so all these new exhibits in zoos ought to be both functional from the point of view of doing something good for animals, but also engaging and inspiring for visitors. Yeah. Mm. So, where are you at now, David? I mean, you, what year did you leave the zoo world, or you probably never have left <laughs> in one respect? Um, and what are you doing now? And, and what do you see the future of the zoos as well? Uh, yes. Well, I, I probably got a bit of a reputation as being a critic of zoos. I think. I think. I was always uh, thinking of ways in which zoos should um, modify their behaviour and their structures, and um, some people thought I was a pain in the ass. Really, I think because I, you know, I never, I never stopped thinking about ways things could be done better. Uh, so, I, but I had to leave the zoo system because of. Uh, family reasons, you know, we as we get older we have deaths in the family and we need to take responsibilities, you know, away from our chosen fields and I had to sort of temporarily leave veterinary science um, and so I've drifted a, a bit away from zoos um, and migrated more towards veterinary science, education, you know, the um, the health and well-being of veterinary students, young vets in practice. So I joined, well, I was always a member of the Australian Veterinary Association, but I joined the committee about six years ago. Now the, the divisional president, and I see now I've, I've got a potential to make positive change for the profession and thereby for animals. But, you know, talking to Brendan again, you know, and catching up with Brendan and, and with Mark now, um, 
it, you hanker for the sort of contact with real issues and real animals and, and you, you want to be engaged in programs that really do benefit you know, wildlife and habitat. So I'm always looking for ideas. Well, and I've got to um, just, if, if you get the chance to listen to any of our older podcasts, you'll you'll come across this theme repeatedly in our discussions that where we feel the the, um, the strains that are applied to particularly recent graduates, but all the people that are in our profession, um, and um, and yet don't for a second underestimate the really valuable work that uh, that the committee does in in mentoring and identifying the the issues that uh, affect mental health of veterinarians. I think um, it is a bit of a domino that um, the best work done by veterinarians for animals and animal welfare is done when their mental health is optimal. And so I think it's a a really important thing for all of us to focus on. Yeah, I think that, and this is coming out in some of the presentations here, more and more um, presentations at conferences, at our national conference in particular, are focusing on well-being. Some of them are student-based, some of them are out in the, uh, you know, in the clinician's sort of sphere, but it, it's it's definitely the case that the best people to look after the health and well-being of veterinarians are healthy, well, veterinarians, you know. <laughs> uh, but what's that, what drives interest in this sometimes, and a, a, a psychologist that was presenting yesterday made this point right at the start of her presentation that her real interest in these issues came from her own ill health mentally at one point. And in recovering from that, she developed this enormous interest and this capacity, if you like, to help others, you know. And so that's what she's concentrating on now. And luckily, she's taken a real interest in veterinarians. But we've got problems in veterinary science. It's a, it's a difficult job. There's lots of responsibility. There's all sorts of fear of failure and, you know, um, and people measuring up against impossible sort of benchmarks and all sorts of stresses and strains that lead to uh, dissatisfaction and um, mental ill health, if I can put it that way. And so we need to be tackling it head on. And the AVA has got, you know, the capacity and the opportunity to do something about it. And that's where over the last few years the mentoring program within the AVA has been um, well received and I think it's fantastic. Um, but when you were talking there, David, I, th I think we need to make sure that we don't forget veterinary nurses or technicians, as they're called overseas as well, have the same sort of issues and pressures oh, as well. Yeah. And, I, and I think we need to also concentrate on setting up programs for our for our staff as well um, to support them with their mental health as well and I think that's probably behind even though the the, the, the support for the veterinarians with their mental health is starting to get um, uh, it's having precedence at the moment but we need to really concentrate for the nurses oh, and look, technicians Brandon, as well. I, look, I totally agree with that and I think there's, there's a if you've got one person that's uh, entering a crisis, you tend to focus on that one person and you see it as a almost like a clinical case that yes. needs dealing with. But when you look at the whole team environment within a hospital or a veterinary clinic, there's, there's a lot of importance now being placed on what sort of, um, what sort of uh, qualities and characteristics do the individuals bring to the clinic and how do they feel comfortable within that team, feel valued, feel connected, you know, this sense of self-worth that every member of the team, this is veterinarians, vet nurses, 
you know, receptionists, groomers, yeah, yep, yep. you know, whoever might be involved. And this is so important, and it doesn't have to be uh, a long, drawn-out... It doesn't have to be an hour's chat over a cup of coffee. All it needs to be is, hey, you know, how are you doing? I've noticed you're not your chirpy self, you know, or I'm here for you, you know? Yep. Yep. And I think um, one of the things I really enjoy about coming to our conference here is um, is the way that it opens up new networks. And I think those uh, networks, those avenues for communication mean that there's just more chance that you will uh, have someone that when you have that point, whether you're a support person in a veterinary hospital, whether you're a veterinarian, you've got someone that you can go, I'm feeling uncomfortable at the moment, I don't feel up to it, um, and then you can put things in place before it gets to those extreme levels. Yeah, and, and the, the tragic thing is that some people feel that when they get to that point, there's nowhere to go, you know, but there's always somewhere to go now. And, you know, we, we know that happiness is definitely uh, to do with a sense of purpose, sense of self-worth and a sense of connectedness and we can provide that connectedness and no one should ever feel that there's, that there's no, nowhere where they can turn for support in you know, times of need. Yes, I, I'm gonna, we're going to get on to a slightly um, more light-hearted topic <laughs> here. Um, David, we were talking last night about... Um, Lots of things, but you mentioned that you may be writing a book at some stage about your exploits as a zoo veterinarian. <laughs> and I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit, David, and I want you Obviously. to tell the story of um, what happened at Phillip Island one day. Um, For, um, Mark, Brendan loves this story. <laughs> Brendan loves this story, so, and I'll try and make it as brief as I can because, you know, it, it's... Uh, you know, Brenda would love me to tease it over, over half an hour. He gets right into it for some reason. <laughs> look, look uh, quite a few years ago now, I was involved with uh, projects uh, all over the place, outside of the zoo, you know, mainly conservation-based projects, where veterinary expertise was required to do something. So um, I, I had a real interest in seals, and as part of this sort of uh, developing interest in seals, I was invited to go down to Seal Rocks for a week Seal Rocks, for those that uh, don't know, is in Western Port Bay on the sort of edge of the uh, outlet to the, um, to the ocean, to Bass Strait, really. And um, it's a very barren, isolated lump of rock, uh, not far off the mainland, a place called the Nobbies. And uh, I was... Uh, I farewelled my family early one morning and made my way down to Phillip Island because I'd been told we were going by boat to Seal Rocks, right? So I had quite a lot of luggage with me, imagining some sort of, you know, Galapagos-style cruise ship. <laughs> well, got down to the beach at... Um, at uh, what's the... Um, cows? Yes. Got down to the beach at Cows, and uh, the boat was like a nine-foot tinny <laughs> with an outboard motor, and we were going very nearly into the ocean in this thing, you know. <laughs> So immediately, and then not only was it a nine-foot tinny, but we started to load it up with the most incredible volume and weight and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then three fairly large men got in on top of all the luggage, and we pushed off the shore. And I thought this thing's going to sink ashore. But anyway, we 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 outboarded all the way to Seal Rocks, and there's a little passage between the uh, Nobbies and uh, Seal Rocks, and it's a, a deep 
uh, channel, and actually tour boats come in there with uh, paying customers you know, to look at the seals, and there is, there's a seal colony there on, on Seal Rocks, obviously, that's why we were going to be there. And uh, I was told as we uh, approached the, uh, the landing site, which was very rocky with sort of boulders roughly you know one to two feet in diameter all over and seals lying everywhere just lolling about and I thought this is going to be interesting you know so the the driver just ran the boat straight up onto the rocks which made a you know, an enormous noise. noise. Uh, a few seals thought this was you know, disturbing and moved out of the way, but quite a few of them didn't. So the man that uh, was in charge of the expedition knew what to do, and he grabbed an oar, and he and he was using the oar to keep the seals away while we got out of the tinny and tried to get to the hut, which is where we were going to live for a week to observe the seal colony. Now, uh, at the same time. My family, who had been, who had come down to see me, you know, see me off, basically, had gone to the um, cafe at the Nobbies, where there are the telescopes that you put, you used to put twenty cents in, and you could see what was going on. You know, but it was designed; they were designed to look at the seals. And so my family were waiting to look through the telescope and there were other people looking through the telescopes. And suddenly there was a shriek across the cafe, they're clubbing the seals, they're clubbing the seals. <laughs> <laughs> At which stage my family were quite alarmed, I think, because they thought the whole purpose of the expedition might have been misunderstood. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, look, to cut a long story short, there was one other little uh, funny twist to the story. We were to live in this small hut, which would have been, well, I suppose, it looked a bit like a cattleman's hut in the high country, except it's, it's on, on the, just on the rocks. And um, we were assured that it would be relatively comfortable and there would be three stretcher beds to sleep in. Well, when we approached the hut, the front door was open, which we thought was... <laughs> <laughs> Not That's a good clue. sign, in a, yeah. and a uh, a male a male fur seal of about two hundred and eighty kilos weight had been living in the hut for about the last six months, <laughs> and and he hadn't been going out to go to the toilet and then coming back again. <laughs> So we, we, had, we had to kind of climb in one window, a window at one end and shoo him out of the hut and then we had to sort of scrape about six inches of seal poo off the floor before we could move in. Uh. Needless to say, when I did return home after a week uh, observing the seals there, I, I had to, um, well, I had to sit outside for the first three days. <laughs> Uh, excellent story, David, and I look forward to reading that in your your biography. Yeah, well, you'll have to help me write. <laughs> You've got such a way with words. <laughs> well, it's been wonderful um, having a brief chat to you, David, and um, listening to a couple of stories and about your philosophy of, of zoos and, and wildlife medicine. And I think we'll have to we'll have to get David back on again oh, at some stage, we're, uh, Mark. We're going to hold him to that. We'll um, we'll make sure we get a booking later in the year and uh, and we can have follow up discussions about some of these stories. Oh, well, thanks very much for having me, Mark and Brent and um, love your idea with your podcast and you keep up the good work here too. Thanks, David. Okay, cheers.
Well, there you go. That was a fantastic interview with David and a very funny story about his escapades or one of his escapades, Mark. And um, David has hundreds of those stories. And I don't know how we got any work done when I was working as a zoo veterinarian when David was around some of the practical jokes that that we got up to. Well, more specifically what I got up to when um, I was a, a zoo veterinarian. Um, yeah, but David's a, a lovely guy and a fantastic man. And um, we will have to have him on again, Mark. We will indeed, Brendan. It was um, it, it, You've known David for uh, personally for a long time, but um, uh, it was my first chance to um, have a talk to him at the conference and um, to to see that um, he lived up completely to the reputation that I knew of him before, and um, he was in fact um, uh, even funnier than you led me to believe. So um, I look forward to catching up it- with him next time. Yes, and he's a true gentleman, isn't he? Um, he's a he's a lovely man, old David. We we my wife calls him Peter Pan um, <laughs> because he's just such a he has such great great sort of worldly ideas, and he's he's got his head in the cloud a lot of the time. But it's good. That's what we need. We need more people that are these big thinkers and um, think about the the bigger issues and um, um, always always think the best of people. Um, as opposed to us, Mark, <laughs> with some of our articles and some of our um, news articles that we have there. Well, I think we're at the end of this episode, Mark, so Mr. Outro is starting and we will talk to you all next time and thank you for listening to The Vet Gurus. Thanks for listening to The Vet Podcast by The Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.